Chapter Five of the Moors in Spain by Stanley Lane Poole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Christian Martyrs. The Sultan Hakam died in eight twenty two after a reign of twenty six years. He left a comparatively tranquil inheritance to his son Abderrahman the Second. The renegade of Cordoba had been subdued and exiled. The bigots had been given a lesson that they were not likely to forget, and there only remained the chronic disturbance on the Christian borders to be occasionally repressed. Abderrahman II inherited his father's talent for enjoyment, but not that strength of character by which self-indulgence was preserved from degenerating into weakness. The new sultan converted Cordoba into a second Baghdad and imitated the prodigalities of the great Harun al-Rashid, who had recently left the scene of his fantastic amusement for, let us hope, a better world. Abderrahman built palaces, laid out gardens, and beautified his capital with mosques, mansions, and bridges. Like all cultivated Muslim sovereigns, he was a lover of poetry and claimed to be no mean poet himself, though his verses were sometimes written by other pens whom he paid to compose for him. His tastes were refined, and his nature was gentle and easily led. Four people ruled him throughout his career. One was a singer, the second a theologian, the third a woman, and the fourth a black slave. The most influential of these was the theologian Yahya, the same who had before stirred up the students against Hakam, and who now acquired an absolute ascendancy over the mind of new sultan. The queen Tarub and the slave Nasr, however, exercised no light authority in political matters, but the singer Ziyab confined his interest to matters of taste and culture, and refused to meddle in the vulgar strife of politics. He was a Persian, and had been a pupil of the famous musician of Baghdad, Isaac the Muslite, until one day he had the misfortune to excel his master in performance before the Caliph Harun, and had immediately afterwards been offered by the jealous Muslite the choice of death or banishment. He accepted the letter and, arriving in Spain, was received with effusion by the cultivated sultan, who assigned him a handsome pension, supplies of food, houses and other privileges and allowances, so that the fortunate singer counted an immense income. So delighted was the sultan with Ziyab's talents that he would sit him beside him and share his meals with him and would listen for hours to his songs and to the wonderful tales he could tell of the bygone times and the wise sayings he could relate from his boundless store of reading he knew more than a thousand songs by heart each with its separate tune which he said the spirits of the air taught him he added the fifth string to the lute and his style of playing was quite unlike anyone else's so that people who had heard him would listen to none other afterwards. He had a curious way with his musical pupils. He used to make the would-be singer sit down and try to sing his loudest. 
If the voice was weak, he told him to tie bands round his waist to increase the volume of sounds. If he stammered or had any defect in his speech, Ziriab made him keep a piece of wood in his mouth till his jaws were properly stretched. After this, if the novice could shout ah at the top of his voice and keep the sound sustained, he took him as a pupil and trained him carefully. If not, he dismissed him. Never was anyone so polished, so witty, so entertaining as Ziyab. He soon became the most popular man in Andalusia and held the position of arbiter of fashion like Petronius or Beau Brummel. He made the people change the manner of wearing their hair. He introduced asparagus and forced meatballs in Andalusia, and the dish was long afterwards known as Ziyab's fricassee. He set the example of drinking out of glass vessels instead of metal, of sleeping on leather beds, dining off leather mats, and a host of other refinements, while he insisted on careful gradation of clothes, diminishing by slow degrees from the thick of winter to the thin of summer, instead of the abrupt change which the people had hitherto made. Whatever he prescribed, the fashionable world followed, there was nothing that this delightful epicure could not persuade them to think both necessary and charming. But while the court was preoccupied with the tasting of new dishes or the cut of its hair, there were earnest people among the subjects of the sultan in Cordova itself who were absorbed by much deeper thought. It was not the external enemy that thus endangered the peace of the Moorish kingdom. Many a time, indeed, did Abderrahman II, who was not wanting in personal courage and love of military glory, led his armies with success against the Christians of the north, who, aided by Louis the Debonair, were continually making some expeditions or foray over the frontiers. These petty campaigns were not yet serious enough to shake the stability of the Muslim rule. The trouble in these early days always came from within. In the present instance, it arose from the too exalted spirit of a small number of Christians at Cordoba. Most of the Christians, indeed, were by no means anxious to emphasize their creed. They found themselves well-treated, free to worship as they pleased, with no hindrance from their rulers, and also free to trade and get rich, as well as their Muslim neighbors. What more could be desired, unless the recovery of their ancient kingdom? And as that was impossible just then, they were content to let well alone and make the best of their mild and tolerant governors. This temper was very general in Andalusia, but there were here and there ambitious or enthusiastic spirits that chafed against such compliance with the rule of the infidel. They remembered the former power and prosperity of their church, and the priests especially could no longer restrain their hatred of the Muslims who had taken away from them their authority and substituted a false creed for the religion of Christ. The very tolerance of the Moors only exasperated such fervent souls. They preferred to be persecuted like the saint of old. They longed to be martyrs, and they were indignant with the Muslims because 
they would not persecute them for rightness' sake and ensure them the kingdom of heaven. Especially hateful to these honest people were the open gaiety and sensuous refinement of the Moors, their enjoyment of life and all its pleasure, their music and singing, their very learning and science, were abhorrent to these ascetics. Life, to the true believer, meant only scourges and fasts, penances and confessions, purification through suffering, the mortifying of the flesh and sanctifying of the spirit. What happened was, in truth, nothing but the manifestation of the ascetic or monastic form of Christianity among the subject population. A sudden and violent enthusiasm took the place of the indifference that had hitherto been the prevailing characteristics of Spanish Christianity, and a race for martyrdom began. It was a grievous pity to see good people throwing away their lives and the lives of others for a dream. The suicides of Andalusia were really no whit more reasonable or truly religious than the sufferings of the priest of Baal, who cut themselves with knives, or of the Indian ascetics, who let their nails grow through the palms of their hands. The fact that the Spanish martyrs were mad in better cause does not make them less insane. Christianity does not teach its disciples to fling away their lives wantonly out of mere joy in being tortured or killed. It was not as if the Christians were persecuted or hindered in the exercise of their faith. It was not as if the Moors were ignorant of Christianity and needed to be preached to. They knew more of the scriptures than many of the Christians themselves, and they never spoke the name of Jesus Christ without adding, May God bless him. Mohammedanism recognizes the inspired nature of Christ and inculcate profound reverence toward him. The Muslims were not ignorant of Christianity, but they preferred their own creed, and while they let the Christians hold to theirs, there is no excuse for latter posing in the heroic character of persecuted believers. Indeed, there is no rational way of getting martyred since Christians were allowed to free exercise their religious rights might preach and teach without let or hindrance, they could not find a legal ground for being persecuted unless they left the path of the gospel and set aside the great lesson of Christ. Love your enemies, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. They were not despitefully used or persecuted. The mass of the Christians were entirely unmolested, and though the priests were sometimes subjected to some public ridicule by the street boys and common people, the better class of Muslims never joined in this. Yet so far were the poor Christians from attempting to love these mild adversaries that they went out of their way to curse them and blaspheme their religion with the simple intention of being martyred for their pains. Now it is well-known law in Muslim countries that he who blasphemes the prophet Muhammad or his religion must die. It is a stern and barbarous law, but the world has seen as bad principles carried into effect over the faggots of Smithfield and Oxford in later ages than that of which we are writing. 
willfully to stir up religious strife, and injuriously to abuse another faith are no deeds for Christians. Voluntarily transgress a law which carries with it capital punishment is not martyrdom, but suicide. And the pity we cannot help feeling for the martyrs of Cordova is the same that one entertains for many less exalted form of hysterical disorder. The victims were indeed martyrs to disease, and their fate is as pitiable as though they had really been martyrs for the faith. The leading spirit of this suicide was Eulogius, a priest who belonged to an old family of Cordova, always noted for its Christian zeal. Eulogius had spent years in prayer and fasting, in bitter penance and self-mortification, and had reduced himself to the ecstatic condition which leads to acts of misguided but heroic devotion. There was nothing worldly left in him, no thought for himself or personal ambition, to cover the false faith of the Moors with contumely, and to awaken a spirit of exalted devotion among his co-religionists. Such were his aims. In these he had throughout the cordial support of wealthy young men of Cordova, Alvaro by name, and a small but forbid body of priests, monks and women, with a few laymen. Among those who found a close affinity to the devoted young priest was a beautiful girl named Flora. She was the child of a mixed marriage, and her Christian mother had brought her up secretly in her own faith. For many years, Flora was to all outward appearance a Mohammedan, but at length, moved by the same spirit of sacrifice and enthusiasm which had stirred Eulogius, and excited by such passages in the Bible as, Whoso shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. She fled from her brother's house, her father was dead, and took refuge among the Christians. The brother, a Mohammedan, searched for her in vain. Many priests were thrown into prison on the charge of being accomplices in the abduction, and Flora, unwilling that others should suffer through her fault, returned to her home and confessed herself a Christian. Her brother tried the sternest means at his disposal to compel her to recant, and at last, in a rage at her obstinacy, brought her before the caddy or Mohammedan judge and accused her of apostasy. The child of a Muslim, even though the mother be a Christian, is held in Mohammedan law to be born a Muslim. An apostasy has always been punishable by death. Even now in Turkey, the law holds good, though there has been a tacit understanding for the last forty years that it shall not be enforced. And a thousand years ago, we must expect to find less tenderness toward the renegades. Yet the judge before whom Flora was thus arraigned displayed some compunction toward the unhappy girl. He did not condemn her to death, as he was in law bound to do so, or even to imprisonment. He had her severely beaten and told her brother to take her home and instruct her in the Mahomedan religion. She escaped, however, again and took refuge with some Christian friends, and here for the first time she met Eulogius, who conceived for the beautiful and unfortunate young devotee 
a pure and tender love such as angels might feel for one another. Her mystical exaltation, devout piety, and unconquerable courage gave her the aspect of a saint in his eyes, and he had not forgotten a detail of their first interview six years later when she wrote to her these words. Though disdain, holy sister, to show me thy neck torn by the scourge, and shorn of the beautiful locks that once hung over it, it was because thou didst regard me as thy spiritual father, and believe me to be pure and chaste as thyself. Softly did I lay my hand on thy wounds, I had it in me to seek to heal them with my lips, had I dared. When I parted from thee, I was as one that walked in a dream, and I sighed without ceasing. Flora and her sister, who shared her enthusiasm, were removed to a safe place of concealment, and Eulogius did not see her again for some time. Meanwhile, the zeal of Cordovan Christian was bearing fruits. A foolish priest, Perfectus, had been led into cursing the dominant religion and had been executed on a great Mohammedan feast day when all the world was rejoicing at the termination of the rigorous fast of Ramadan, which had lasted a whole month. The Muslims, men and women, made this feast a special occasion of merry-making, and the execution of the offending priest added a new subject of excitement to the crowds that thronged the streets and sailed on the river and flourished on the great plain outside the city. The poor priest died bravely, causing Mohammed and his religion with his last breath, surrounded by a vast crowd of scoping and pitiless Muslims. The bishop of Cordoba, followed by an army of priests and devotees, took down his body, buried him with the holy relics of Saint Asisculus, a martyr of Diocletian's persecution, in whose church he had officiated, and forthwith had him made a saint. The same evening two Muslims were drowned, and this was at once accepted as the judgment of God on the murderers of Perfectus. The black slave, Nasr, who had superintended the execution, died within the year, and the Christians triumphantly declared that Perfectus had predicted this disease. It was another judgment. Soon a monk named Isaac sought an interview with the Cadi on the pretext of wishing to be converted to the Mohammedan religion. But no sooner had the learned judge explained the doctrines of Islam than the would-be convert turned around and began to heap maledictions upon the creed which he had asked to be taught. It was no marvel that the astonished caddy gave him a cough. Do you know, said he, that our law condemns people to death for daring to speak as you have spoken? I do, answered the monk, condemn me to death, I desire it, for I know that the Lord said, Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Kadi was sorry for the man, and begged the sultan to overlook his crime, but in vain. Isaac was decapitated, and thereupon became a saint and it was proved conclusively that he had worked many miracles not only ever since his childhood but even before he came into the world presently one of the sultan's guard 
Sancho, a pupil of Eulogius, blasphemed Mohammed and lost his head. Next Sunday, six monks rushed before the Cadi and shouted, We too say what our holy brothers Isaac and Sancho said, and forthwith fell to blaspheming Mohammed and to crying, Avenge your accursed prophet, treat us with all your barbarity. Their heads were cut off. Three more priests or monks, infected with the fervor of suicide, rushed excitedly to present their necks to the headsmen. Eleven thus fell in less than two months during the summer of 851. The great body of the Christians were dismayed at the indiscreet zeal of their brethren. It must not be forgotten that the Spaniards had not so far been remarkable for religious fervor. Their creed sat lightly upon them, and so many of them had been converted to Islam that the two creeds and the two peoples had become to a considerable extent mixed together in friendly intercourse. The Christians had come to despise their old Latin language and literature. They learned Arabic and soon were able to write it as well as the Arabs themselves. Eulogius himself deplores this change. The Christians, he says, delight in the Arabic poems and romances instead of the Holy Scripture and the works of the fathers. The younger generation know only Arabic. They read the Muslims' book with other, form great libraries of them, and find them admirable, while they will not glance a Christian book. They are forgetting their own language, he adds, and hardly one in thousand can write a decent Latin letter. Yet they indict excellent Arabic verse. The Christians, in fact, found Arab romances and poetry much more entertaining than the writings of the fathers of the church. They were growing more and more Arab, more civilized, more refined, and also more indifferent to distinctions of faith. They were grateful to the Moors for treating them well, and the sudden animosity displayed by their excited brethren amazed and shocked them. They endeavored to avert the threatening storm by showing their brethren the futility of their conduct. They argued with them, remind them how tolerant the Muslims had always been to Christians, recall to them the peaceful teaching of the gospel and the words of the apostle that slanderers shall not enter the kingdom of heaven, and told them how the Muslims regard these deaths with no disquietude, for they argued, if your religion were true, God would have avenged his martyrs. These worthy Christians of common kind, who knew not the force of spiritual exaltation for good and for evil, and only did their duty to their neighbors and said their prayers in the simple old-fashioned manner, tried in vain to restrain the zealots. They perceived that this continued insult and swift following punishments must at last end in real persecution. Eulogius, on the contrary, who set himself to answer their objection with text out of the Bible and the lives of the saints, coveted such a result, and the zealots desired nothing better than the fire of persecution. The ecclesiastical authorities, worked upon by the moderate party, and also by the Moorish government, could not permit the spirit of revolt to continue much longer unreproved. The bishops met in council under the presidentship of the Metropolitan of Seville, 
and though they could not precisely repudiate the former martyrdoms, since the church had already canonized the sufferers, yet they ordained that no more exhibitions of the kind should be made, and in furtherance of this decision, the leaders of the zealots were thrown into prison. Here Eulogius met Flora again. She had been praying earnestly one day in a church when she saw beside her a fellow enthusiast, a sister of that monk Isaac, who had been one of the earliest martyrs. Mary wanted to join her brother in the kingdom of heaven, and Flora resolved to accompany her. They went before the caddy and did their best to excite his anger by blaspheming the name of Mohammed and his religion. Two young and beautiful girls, professing most sincerely the religion of peace on earth and goodwill towards men, stood before the magistrate with lips full of cursing and bitterness, reviling his faith as the work of the devil. But the good judge was not to be roused so easily. He was weary of all this hysterical mania, and had many a time pretended to be deft when people thrust themselves upon death. He thought it was a pity of those two girls, and wished they would not be so foolish. He would try to induce them to retract or make as though he had not heard, but they persisted in their heroic purpose, and he had to put them in prison. Here, in the long confinement, the maidens were daunted and almost inclined to waver in their sacrificial ardor, when Eulogius came to strengthen and destroy them. His task was the hardest in the world, to encourage the woman whom he loved with all his soul to go to the scaffold. Yet, in spite of every natural and human feeling, this man of iron nerved himself to fan the flame of enthusiasm to the point of martyrdom. It was a daily agony to the unhappy priest, but he never relaxed his efforts in what he believed to be the good cause. He even wrote an entire treatise to convince Flora, who needed but little, of the supreme beauty and glory of martyrdom for the faith. He spent his days and nights in reading and writing, to banish from his heart those feelings and compunction and love which threatened to shake his resolution. But it was only too firm. Flora and Mary remained constant and undismayed in spite of the anxious efforts of the caddy to help them to save themselves, and after the final interview, when sentence of death was pronounced, Eulogius saw Flora. She seemed to me an angel, he wrote afterwards, glorying in the spiritual triumph. A celestial illumination surrounded her, her face lightened with happiness. She seemed already to be tasting the joys of the heavenly home. When I heard the word of her sweet mouth, I sought to establish her in a resolve by showing her the crown that waited her. I worshipped her, I fell down before this angel, and besought her to remember me in her prayers, and strengthened by her speech, I returned less sad to my somber cell. Flora and her companion Mary were executed at last, 24th November 851, and Eulogius wrote a paean of joy to celebrate what he deemed the great victory of the church. Soon after this, Eulogius and the other priests were released from prison, and the next year, Abderrahman II died and was succeeded by his son Mohammed, a rigid, cold-hearted egotist 
who screwed savings out of the salaries of his ministers and was universally detested for his meanness and unworthiness. The theologians alone liked him, for he seemed likely to avenge to the full the insult which the excited Christians had poured upon the Mohammedan religion. Churches were demolished, and such severe persecution was set on foot that though many Christians had become Muslims when the bishops had officially condemned suicidal martyrdom, many more now followed their example. Indeed, according to Eulogios and Alvaro, the majority recanted. The wise and kindly policy of Abdul Rahman and his ministers, who shut their eyes when the Christians were wantonly committing themselves, was now exchanged for policy of cruel repression, and it is no wonder that apostasy was the rule. Still, the influence of the little band of zealots were powerful, and had already extended far beyond the limit of Cordoba. Toledo made Eulogius its bishop, and when the sultan refused his consent, the primacy was kept vacant until the zealots should be permitted to occupy it. Two French monks came to Cordoba to beg some relics of holy martyrs and went back to Saint-Germain-de-Pré with handsome bag of bones which were presently displayed to the faithful at Paris. But a heavy blow was about to fall upon the enthusiasts. Another girl deserted her parents to follow Eulogius, and this time she and her teacher were brought before the Cadi. Eulogius was guilty only of proselytizing, and his legal punishment was but a scourging. But the priest was not made of the stuff that endures the whip. Humble and long-suffering before his God, willing to inflict any torture on his own body for the sake of the faith, he could not submit to be flogged by the infidel. Make sharp thy sword, judge, he cried, send my soul to meet my creator, but think not that I will suffer my body to be lacerated with whips. And here he burst into a flood of maledictions against Mohammed and his religion. The Kadi would not take upon himself the responsibility of executing the sentence upon so prominent a leader as Eulogius, and the priest was accordingly brought before the privy council. One of the body expostulated with him and asked why a man of sense and education should voluntarily run his head into peril of death. He could understand fools and maniacs doing so, he said, but Eulogius was of a different stamp. Listen to me, he added, I entreat you, yield for once to necessity. Retract what you said before the Kadi, and say but the word, and you shall go free. But it was too late. Eulogius, though he preferred the position of train of martyrs to setting the example himself, could not retreat from his ground with dignity. He must go on to the bitter end, and refusing to retract anything, he was forthwith led out to execution, and died with the courage and devotion on March 11, 859. Deprived of their leader, the Christian martyrs lost heart, and we do not hear of their mad devotion again. End of chapter 5